You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 13th of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. London welcomes the US President. My guests Melkin Charchoglian, Augustin Machalari and Chiara Ramella will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the imminent conclusion of the World Cup, the apparently inexhaustible appetite for gotcha satirical interviews, and avocados. Why and how have they become a signifier of the West's property crisis? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Melkin Charchoglian, Augustin Machalari and Chiara Ramella. Welcome all. And we will start right here in the United Kingdom, which is currently hosting US President Donald Trump and not coincidentally a massive protest here in London. The building is verily shuddering to the sound of overflying helicopters. Even by Trump's lamentable standards, he has had quite a day of it, giving a bizarre joint press conference with UK Prime Minister Theresa May, in which he speculated cheerfully about her possible successor, giving a deranged interview to The Sun, which he later attempted to partially retract, refusing to take a question from a media outlet he didn't like, and saying that a post-Brexit trade deal between the UK and the US was both impossible and possible. It's still only 1,800 hours here in London, mind you. The night is young. Um, Chiari, you were at the demonstration earlier. What was it like? Um, it was uh, very busy. Um, surprisingly, I think less angry than what I would have I would have expected. Um, there were an awful lot of placards. The most recurring um, title being being given to Trump. Or at least the epithet that was uh, paraded around was "Dump Trump." Um, there were quite a quite a large group of opera supporters around a I guess a, a, something that looked similar to a, a phone cabin filled with a, a full figure of opera and them singing around it. Um, Oh, happy day in honour of uh, opera for next president. I mean, a- angry though people are, resorting to opera strikes me as an overreaction. <laughs> it's never right, is it? E- exactly. <laughs> No, but I think overall the atmosphere was um, was surprisingly cheerful for the for, for the for the occasion. Um, we were there just at the beginning of the march, just before the people started marching, and uh, there were still um, lots of music, lots of kind of Caribbean-like music being played. So I think it was there was room for some degree of celebration of the things that Trumps. Trump dislikes, really. The demonstration is unlikely to go away anytime soon. People are, of course, leaving work. It's Friday. It's a thoroughly pleasant evening. And, you know, England no longer has the World Cup final to look forward to. So people will probably be making the most of it. Um, Augustine, what purpose does a protest like this serve? Is it, and I don't mean to demean or diminish uh, the sentiment underpinning it, but is is there something festival-like and celebratory about it? Certainly, I think there is. I've been asking that question myself and it's clear that it serves no purpose when it comes to communicating anything meaningful to the president of the united states who doesn't care you know who wouldn't care what a billion people shouting we don't like you had to say i think the purpose it serves is as you say it's part carnival it's also about raising the profile of 
dissenting voices in the UK about making it clear not just to Trump, but also to Trump supporters in America, people in the UK who might be more inclined towards backing some of his more extreme policies, that that kind of politic is not all right, that it won't stand. And it's about taking the Overton window, which has been shifted further and further to the right, so that now we've arrived in a situation where we will sit round and discuss, you know, these ideas which are basically fascist, many of them, in a way that suggests that they're normal. And by getting together, by saying, we don't, we don't like this, we won't have it, I think, I think what it serves to do is to, is to kind of bring that window back, if not to the left, certainly somewhere more central, where we can sort of stand and collectively discuss things in a bit more of a reasoned way. Well, rather interestingly, there was a protester there when we were there a couple of hours ago um, who obviously said Trump's not here. He's been avoiding London very, very obviously, mm-hmm. um, going all sorts of other countryside places. Um, so she said Trump's not here, but the government is. Um, I mean, the protest started in Portman Place and then later made its way down to Trafalgar Square. Um, I think it's as important a, a signal to... To the, U- to the UK's government and whether it should have even invited Trump in the first place or not. Uh, Malcolm, I'd like to pick up on what Augustine said, that Trump may not care about the message of the protesters, but he'll be desperate for these images not to be broadcast ba- back to the US. Because there, most, you know, for example, Fox will be reporting about the black tie dinner at Blandon Palace. They won't be focusing their cameras on the protesters. But if, you know, the US sees that, there was such an enormous turnout against their president. In my sway opinion, maybe even of just a few people. I, I honestly doubt it. I honestly think in the last 24 hours have just confirmed that he will just either say it didn't happen or that they were all demonstrating because they really like him. I mean, literally just today, uh, his press secretary, I think it's his press secretary, ha- has been tweeting, um, assert- trying to uphold his claim that he predicted the Brexit vote when he was in Scotland the day of the referendum. I mean, that is demonstrably, manifestly un true. It just simply isn't the case. It provably isn't the case. He was there the day after. Uh, and despite the fact that lots of other journalists and news organisations news organizations have been saying to her, no, you weren't, that never happened and we can prove it. They don't. They just don't care. But then what do you propose? Not to press at all? To simply allow lies to become truths? No, not at all. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of people protesting and I think, I think it's a good thing in itself because by protesting you are asserting the fact that you have that right to protest. I think it's one of those things that it, it diminishes if, if, if not actually exercised. But, I mean, uh, Kiara, to move along to Trump's behaviour over the last 24 hours, and I, I know it is the evergreen Trump question, but do you discern any indication here that he actually has the least idea what he's doing, or is he just continuing to thrash around like a man several miles out of his depth? Probably the latter. I think what's interesting is that naturally this is completely against any kind of etiquette of visiting a country, undercutting a prime minister in such a way on home turf. Interesting to see how that etiquette will apply to his encounter with the Queen as well. Where I wonder well, whether I wonder whether he's going to go for the proper handshake. And well, he, he pull was her back. he was late to meet the Queen. He also walked ahead of her, and you know Melania didn't curtsy to the Queen. It's like three own goals. Mm. I mean, he's on the record as saying some pretty awful things about Princess Diana back in the day as well, isn't he? He's on, on the, the record, Stone in fairness, as saying pretty awful things about just about everybody who has ever drifted across his consciousness. That's true, apart from Boris Johnson. Apart from Boris Johnson and Vladimir Putin. Uh, Two lest outstanding we members. Well, indeed. Of the... and, and we should mention we will be looking 
at least a little bit on the daily tonight on the latest uh, indictments in the Mueller investigation. Um, just a final thought on Theresa May, though, Augustine. Would there, there had been a certain amount of fantasy uh, entertained by some people, often with annoying reference to one of the worst movies ever made about what would happen if Theresa May stood up publicly to Donald Trump. Would that have been a politically smart thing for her to do? Is that a Love Actually reference? That is a Love Actually reference, <laughs> okay. well spotted. I, I, let the record show that all I said was one of the worst movies ever made and Augustine got it instantly. In his consciousness, though. You know, the record will also show that. No, um, yeah, do you know what? I think there probably might have been. Certainly there would have been uh, to the metropolitan British public. I don't know about... Um, I'm conscious of the sort of Twitter sphere and all of these different little kind of vortexes which contain... Uh, our separate political identities in the UK. But I think that in standing up to her, the electorate would have seen some shred of charisma and chutzpah that she's been yet to demonstrate so far. And to be perfectly honest, I think Trump is going to do exactly what Trump wants to do, regardless of, of, of whether or not she's making nice to him. The only thing that's going to change really is how humiliated she's going to be while he does what he does. And she might have been a little less had she done a love actually. Well, let's move on uh, to what will sadly be the final instalment of the rigorous and learned World Cup analysis for which Midori House has become rightly renowned these last few weeks. There are now only two games left to play. There's the third place playoff between England and Belgium on Saturday, about which not even English people or Belgians care, possibly up to and including the members of the actual teams. And then there's the final on Sunday between France and Croatia. Is anybody at this table able to claim enough French or Croatian ancestry that they can claim to still have a stake in this World Cup? I'm actually fully Croat. Mm-hmm. Not, not. not even remotely. <laughs> no, but being Malcolm Italian... <laughs> as, as you now wish to be known. Exactly. I was going to say, being Italian, uh, I, I think uh, that definitely puts me on the anti-French spectrum of things, oh, surely. Yeah. Support the underdog, always. Augustine? I am going to watch all three Mummy films back to back this summer. <laughs> that's a that's that's a that's an almost dadaist dadaist uh, sorry approach to uh, consuming the World Cup. Do you, do you have some violent objection to either the French and or Croatian nations as a whole, or just football in general? I wish both of them very well. I hope that the team with the more focused and sportsmanlike players eventually wins. I hope that it's a good clean match. I hope that all the fans go home happy. I wish the best for everyone concerned, but it's not my thing. Really? A World Cup final? Yeah, man. Even out of connoisseurship, <laughs> just for the sake of the art of watching, you know, people do incredible acrobatics. The thing is, I just, I don't get much pleasure from football. I've been enjoying tennis and maybe I will dip into the Wimbledon final. Uh, as, as a sport, as an exercise in form, I'm more kind of entertained by that. But like, simply put, I do just find the sight of a football match Diabolically tedious. Not even revolting. Just like, I just don't zone out. It comes down. That's fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I have enjoyed this World Cup thoroughly, though I do think, and hope is now dwindling for it, the one thing it has really lacked uh, is that match. And there usually is at least one in a tournament, which just for reasons nobody quite understands degenerates into an inexplicable bloodbath with, with, <laughs> with four red cards and a couple of decent punch-ups. Um, I, I don't, un- unfortunately, hold up much hope that the World Cup final will t- turn into that. But you, you never know. You never know. Um, those of you who were paying any attention to this World Cup, how, how how did you cope with England's loss? I know we're a bit stuck for English people at this table, but nonetheless, we live here. I actually didn't manage to cope. I, 
I was so overly optimistic, I forgot to prepare my kind of protective mechanisms <laughs> of what happens if we lose. I was certain, there was, I was absolutely certain that we're going to win. And then when we did concede that second goal, I didn't know what to do. I just kind of like just looked to the ground for a couple of minutes and then finished my beer and left. It was so sad. The only other experience of watching a whole World Cup from start to finish I have um, was in 2006 when Italy obviously won the whole yeah, Cup. Yeah, after you totally swindled Australia in the knockout <laughs> matches. That was an outrageous dive. It was never, ever a penalty. And really, uh, I, I think Italy should have been ashamed to take that World Cup home. One of my favourite memories of Francesco Totti, if you ask me. But uh, nonetheless, um, I think... I, I adopted English nationality uh, for the, for the for the purposes of this tournament, and uh, and I feel deflated, but ultimately confirmed because I think it's what I think it's what we knew from the beginning was going to happen. Mm. Just only delaying the, the delaying the disappointment is what made the disappointment even I, more crucial. I, to I, the I, I don't think anybody other than actually mad people thought England were going to win this World Cup, and very very <laughs> few people thought they were going to make it as far as the semi-finals. They, I mean, they had a phenomenally lucky path through to the final, but you you can only beat what's put in front of you. Um, I will put it to you, though, Augustine, despite your expressed indifference to the sport and the tournament, have you been surprised by... Because I've noticed this in my long observation of the English people. There was a definite... A lot of people weren't sure how to respond to this team and this manager. Most English people I know, even if they, especially, in fact, especially if they're big football fans, have something of a conflicted relationship with their national team. They kind of want them to win, but they're also often, in that very English way, hideously embarrassed by the team, uh, by its management, and especially by its more vocal fans. But that didn't seem to be quite the case this time. For the first time, maybe since about 1990, people seem to actually genuinely like this English team yeah i think they did i mean i will just say uh i did watch the game and <laughs> i did feel the same Didn't amount of uh, pathos as everyone else when the result was unsatisfactory to me but um yeah there has been a kind of nice atmosphere around it hasn't there people have felt very on everyone's side in the run-up to the game rakib's Raheem Sterling. Raheem Sterling. Raheem Sterling. <laughs> Sorry, that's how good I am at <laughs> Sterling, I remember, was caught up in that controversy where he had an M16 rifle tattooed on his leg and the sun laid into him and everyone turned around. Obviously, it was the sun, which is already kind of courting controversy in the football world. But everyone turned around and really backed him. And that kind of spirit of solidarity carried itself across all of the matches really and I guess maybe I wonder if it's related to the fact that you know the UK is not to get too kind of heavy about it but so divided at the moment um, that this is an opportunity for people to just really back one element of it and quite a pleasant element you know that mixes people of different social and cultural backgrounds so. you know and the players are all young and they're all kind of all right seeming guys well, can, well, the coach spell, the manager especially, seemed to focus for a lot of this. The, the generally unassuming Gareth Southgate, and I think the generally unassuming thing was what played. But Melkin, did it? The thing that struck me as weird about it. I mean, I have nothing against him. He seems like a perfectly affable chap, and he seemed he's done a really good job, and and good luck to him, and so forth. But there did seem to be this this almost desperate desire, I think, at, at large in England, for just that one public figure who you can look at and just think. 
he seems nice and <laughs> and and like he knows what he's doing and 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 humble and self-effacing and like somebody you wouldn't you know burn your own home down in response to if they moved in next door does that tell you something about what a shortage of such people there is in British public life at the moment I think so. I mean, the general conversation about Anglo football team is that they're arrogant, spoiled, and they're very good material for hatred. One of the benefits, or well, one of the great things that have, <laughs> that's come out of the single team is like, yes, there are, these, there are now players that we can all like and, you know, we can follow and see how they progress to the Euros and the next World Cup. We can say they're nice people, you know. They're, they're, there's been a great deal of good sportsmanship. Gareth Southgate, what an elegant, like, professional figure to represent the team, brought the waistcoat back into action. Yeah, but don't we all wish we bought shares in waistcoats three, well, the three readers, months ago? The readers don't know, but we're all wearing full Gareth Southgate <laughs> outfits. I think so. That we have people to love now in football, and that's a good thing. Well, on that upbeat note, we are going to take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Chiara Ramella, Augustin Machalari and Malkin Chachogli. And coming up next, is there still really any point in satirising anything? The pendulum is a swinging and these days it's the city of Paris that's turning heads with retail innovation. Monocle Films travelled to the 16th arrondissement to sample Le Beau Marché's new addition to La Grande Épicerie family. Food is a lot of memory. It's memory with your mother, with your grandmother. Food is uh, a pleasure. You have to find this uh, game with a product. I try in the architecture to have this sensibility. For a filmic tour of La Grande Épicerie Rive Droite, head to monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me, Akiara Ramella, Augustin Machalari, and Melkin Charchogli. And now, Sasha Baron Cohen, previously architect of meta characters Borat, Ali G, and Bruno, among others, is shortly to grace our screens with a new series. Who is America has been kept a close, closely guarded, in fact, secret. But it seems to be the case that once again, Cohen has tapes of himself under some sort of cover, successfully gulling public figures into doing and/or saying stupid and/or ridiculous things. Rumoured victims this time include Bernie Sanders and Sarah Palin. Um, Kiara, he has been doing this for quite some time now and he's not even the first to have done this sort of thing. Is it still funny? Well, I've got to admit that I'm not the biggest Cohen fan myself. I have struggled to completely get on board with the humour before. Um, nonetheless, even just before the show, I did watch a, a, a cheeky YouTube clip of his 10 best moments and I did chuckle to myself a couple of times. So I've got to admit that some of it is, is funny. Um, I don't know. I think what I've really enjoyed about this very last kind of burst of action from him is the new level of meta that it's come to, because naturally he has managed to dupe Sarah Palin, who's already gone public saying, I have been duped by him. And Duping is- Sarah Palin, I don't, I mean, really. <laughs> Shooting fish at bow. <laughs> how, how bright do you need to be? Well, what I'm trying to say is that what I think is is even funnier is her second responses. She's said he's duped me. He should apologize. Um, he has responded, which I think is the best thing out of this whole thing, um, that she should apologize to him, <laughs> and that her saying that he was outrageous is fake news. And I quite like this this whole meta meta level that things are getting to, where 
I, I just wonder how many times we can answer fake news one to one another until it becomes like a massive UNESCO play and we just all leave and the stage remains empty with a few chairs on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I say, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I have never once laughed at anything Sasha Baron Cohen has done because I have and I probably will again. I just wonder how often he makes the point he thinks he's making, though, because I think a lot of the times the setup interviews with people, it's just people who are just trying to be polite to get through what has become an awkward and uncomfortable encounter because they're basically polite people and on that subject the thing that struck me most about the Borat film which is funny but I think he thought it was a satire of America and Americans and to me I just sat there watching it thinking this is such a testament to that innate American courtesy like the lengths he has to go to to get an angry response from people if he would tried to make that film in Britain he'd have been hospitalised within 72 hours uh, ditto in Australia I think he, this, he's able to pull this stuff off with Americans because they're so polite. I agree and also I think Borat was just it didn't really satirize anyone. It just kind of, you know, took the mickey out of Kazakhstan. It's a really bad PR exercise for them. But I think I don't think he's ever properly done real intellectual rigorous satire before. So it'll be interesting to see how he approaches the subject. Will he reveal something new? Will he, as we said, as Kiara said, manage to kind of penetrate the fake news armor and and rile people like Sarah Palin and Trump? I think it'll be a real test. See, I, I think there should be a rule if you're making a program like this that you you have to show the footage of the people who rumbled you. Because, yeah. because there must be some who get 30 seconds into the interview and just go, what what the hell is going on yeah. here? Or aren't you Sasha Baron, Baron Cohen? Yeah, I, I'm sure there are. And I imagine that probably over the end credits there will be something, there will be a nod to that. I don't... I mean, I, I really like cruelty and humour. I think that... <laughs> I really like it. I think that satire, we're, we're going to edit that so it just yeah. says, I really like cruelty. <laughs> I like that too. No. Um, I, I, satire performs a vitally important uh, kind of political and social role and has done for years. Jonathan Swift in, like, the 18th century wrote a pamphlet about yes. eating babies to draw attention a to... A modest proposal. A modest proposal, We've right? all read it. We've all read it, and it's <laughs> jokes. Um, <laughs> Swift's own words, jokes. <laughs> it really is. The, the, the point being that, like, it's not the job of satire to be friendly. That's parody. That's like The Simpsons. Satire is meant to be sharp, and it's meant to attack everything. And it's meant to call into question how we look at and relate to institutions and public figures in a way that opens them up for kind of more objective criticism. You know, the classic, obviously, I imagine you're a big fan of Brass Eye. And oh, you of course, yeah. So you're not, you know, maybe Chris Morris did it better, but I think early Ali G was really funny in like highlighting the kind of generational gap and also just like absolute absence of kind of for want of a better word street knowledge of like older people in the sort of of, of like institutional figures and yeah drawing attention to these like deficits is super important because if nothing else it kind of highlights how big the gap is between these figures in power and everyone else. But, but Kiara, to, to expand upon your earlier point about the, the, the meta-ness of it and it all piling various layers of knowingness and archness on top of each other, 
are we anywhere near a point at which satire is actually redundant? Because if we just go back to the march we were looking at today, the sort of centipede, centipede, the centerpiece of which was that somewhat underwhelming Donald Trump dirigible, uh, this inflatable representation of the president as a wailing baby. We are in a situation where that balloon would objectively be a better actual president. Uh, once we've reached that point... Uh, is satire still doing anything for us? Absolutely. I think it's more important than ever when you think about the fact that Donald Trump genuinely stayed away from London, probably because of the protests, but I think genuinely also because of how ridiculous that, that perhaps underwhelming, as you say, um, Trump baby was. And I think a lot of people criticise such personal approaches to satire as stooping to people's level. But I think that that's that same kind of cruel and apparently not necessarily very intelligent approach to satire, which is quite crude, uh, of the of the your old 17th century, is really quite relevant now. Um, when you think about the fact that there were two people with giant papier-mâché heads in front of Czechos, 200 people um, demonstrated in front of it and two papier-mâché um, heads in front of it. And I think that kind of stuff genuinely riles Donald Trump up. Well, I mean, indeed, if he had any sense or if the people who do his PR had any sense, they would have arranged for him to go down and see the, see the balloon and give it a big wave and have his picture taken with it, which would have, uh, no pun intended, deflated the protest entirely. Uh, but finally tonight, uh, we will look at the return of a hardy and formidable perennial. This is the so-called Avozilla. This being a giant-sized avocado, roughly four or five times the size of the regular fruit, weighing in excess of of a kilogram. Originally developed in South Africa, first seen here in the UK a few years back, they have now arrived in Australia, just in time to capitalise on the avocado's unlikely role in the modern generation gap. In Australia's big cities, as in other places where nobody under 40 can afford to buy anywhere to live, those over 40 are weirdly fond of suggesting to younger folks that it's all their fault for having avocado on their toast with brunch. Uh, it is strange. This You hear this, I don't know why the avocado became this thing, but it's become a big, no big thing in Australian political political discourse, where it seems to have started mm -hmm. the it's all your new millennials fault for eating avocados. Um, and, it, and it has really spread. Before we, before we examine this in all the depth that another three and a half, four and a half, three and a half minutes will allow us, um, where are we just generally on avocados? Uh, our producer of this program, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, wishes it entered into the record that he thinks they are horrific, just horrendous. He can barely be in the same room as one. Just e e even even the f even the fact that we're sitting here talking about it, I can see him blanching visibly in the production booth. He's he's going to have to leave the room while we talk about this. He cannot cope at all. Where are the rest of you? I really respect um, Fernando's hatred of avocados <laughs> and also of dried fruit. I have to say that I like both of them absolutely fine. I don't think avocados have to be served on literally every single dish that I'm given, but every now and then. You know, my mum used to give them to me when I was little. She'd take the stone out and pour some olive oil and some balsamic vinegar in the Very hole. Nice. That's, that's the most middle-class thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> and what, you have, just you wait. <laughs> Until we get stuck in this. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I, 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 would, I would consider myself broadly pro-avocado. I, I, I like guacamole yeah, why not? and so forth. But guacamole is infused with delicious ingredients, whereas just avocado in its own just tastes like grass. The only yeah, reason but, I but eat it is because it's healthy. Well, yeah, but guacamole without avocado in it is going to be a somewhat unsatisfactory salsa. dining experience. Yeah, yeah, it's stick to salsa. Salsa. Uh, See, Chiara. avocado is still quite a novelty for me because I don't know if I've mentioned in this program yet, but I am Italian. You're not. <laughs> yes. She's eating a bowl of pasta. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so only since my move to England have I started appreciating this fruit, which is still kind of in the exotic food aisle in uh, in Italian supermarkets, only to be spotted in in amongst packaged cheese, which is yet another very exotic uh, exotic thing for us. Um, so I enjoy it. Um, it makes me feel. Bit special. So, is that is that the reason why it has become this weird signifier of millennial self-indulgence to those people who think that millennials are self-indulgent? You know, this idea that well, if you had less avocado with your brunch, you'd all be able to afford a house. I mean, it's a plainly absurd thing to say, but people for some reason say it because it's the archetypal sort of superfood, isn't it? It's greasy without being. It's like good fat. It manifests all sorts of different kind of postmodern food qualities that we look for in our meals we spend it, money on vanity I think yeah, yeah and you can put it on your face and <laughs> can, it, well, I mean, you can put anything on your face but what, <laughs> what, what, why would you put avocado on your face i just to moisturize it i've seen it avocado butter I'm just going to say uh, this is this is going to turn me into one of those forty-somethings who who, who rails at people for their avocado fripperies. Forty-something, you'd be lucky. <laughs> <laughs> technically, still the case. Not for that much longer, but technically, still the case. I've stopped buying avocado. I'll eat it if it's served. But since going to Mexico and learning that avocado is so precious there as a material to be produced that it's on the same level as drugs, as in there are towns raided by the cartels hmm. because avocado farms are literally gold mines. There's one town uh, kicked out all the police officers because they were corrupt, took over and started guarding the avocado fields themselves because it's, it's literally money growing in their fields. But there's an avocado mafia thing going on in Mexico. Literally not even a joke. Blood the avocados. cartels have turned to avocados. Blood avocados, pretty much. So I was like, I wash my hands with this. <laughs> I will eat olive oil instead. There we go. Good fats from Italy. Extraordinary. That is something I did not know half an hour ago when we started this program. In which case, I think our work is done. That does bring <laughs> us to the end of today's show. Cara Ramella, Augustin Machalari, and Melkin Chachoglian, thank you for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Lamichi Okamoto and Paula Schulze. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Marcos Hippie. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time on Monday, 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening.